Well, Sunday mornings, we're in the book of Revelation, and we're thinking about ultimate realities. And today we return to this vision of the ultimate future, God's new world, a resurrected universe, and the centerpiece of this new creation is a city, the new Jerusalem, a city that is also a bride, the bride of Christ, is speaking about the people of God. And we looked at this at length last time. If you remember chapters 21, verses 9 to 27, it's not a stained glass window. It's not a frozen picture. It's a tableau of life, overflowing, abundant, superabundant life. And here we have the redeemed of the nations living together in perfect harmony, unity, love, and best of all, God with us. And if you didn't hear the sermon, you missed it, um, do catch up. It's on the web, um, on our website, and you can listen to it. Today, though, we come to chapter 22 and the first five verses. Now, when you listen to those verses, um, what came to mind? Well, I hope what came to mind was the Garden of Eden. So for a moment, let's go back, back to the beginning, back to the first Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 verse 1 begins with these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We've been thinking about this on Sunday evenings, there's the heavens, that's God's dimension of the creation, and there's the earth, that's our dimension of the creation. Two halves of the creation, two halves that are to make a whole. And the story of the Bible is the bridging of the gap between heaven and earth, the coming together of these two dimensions to make one united creation. And how is that to be achieved? Well, it's to be achieved through a unique creature, a creature that bears the image of God. Chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, the first human being. And he's beautiful, isn't he? He's awakened with a kiss. And as he awakes and opens his eyes, he's face to face with his maker, alive and in fellowship with God. That's what it means to be human. And Adam, he's made of the earth, but he's filled with the breath of heaven. So he's a child of heaven and earth. And he's the one to be the bridge. He's the bridge between these two halves of the creation. He's both heavenly and earthly. And his calling and the calling of his children will be to bring heaven and earth together. Now, heaven and earth already meet. They meet in a garden paradise, the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, a river flows. In that garden, the tree of life grows. And in that garden, in the cool of the day, God visits to walk with Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. It's like a door between the two dimensions, like a corridor between the two dimensions. Heaven and earth meet in the garden. And Adam's calling is to reign. He's to rule over the works of God's hands. He's to extend this garden paradise across the earth. And he and his wife are to populate it with more and more image bearers of God. So that we read, 
God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They're to extend this garden paradise until everywhere is like the garden. Until everywhere heaven and earth are joined. Until everywhere the dwelling place, the home of God and humankind are together. That's the destiny. Such an exalted destiny. And if you read, it's the stuff of Psalm 8. It's the stuff of Hebrews chapter 2. You can read those later. So here's Adam and Eve. What are they? They are finite reflections of the infinite God. They're clothed with honor and glory. They are to rule over the works of God's hands. They're God's viceroys. They're kings over the creation that he has made. Such an exalted destiny. But what happened? Well, we know what happened. Genesis 3 happened. And Satan makes his move. And Adam and Eve are weaponized in his rebellion. And Adam and Eve, once brilliant, beautiful, breathtaking, once holy, innocent, perfect, they're now, in Genesis 3, having sinned, are now hostile, hateful, guilty, ashamed. They're at war with each other. And they're at war with God. And the final scene of chapter 3, verse 24, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So that final scene, Adam and Eve driven from the garden. They're now exiles in a cursed world. And under a death sentence. And as they looked back, what did they see? They saw fire barring the way to paradise. Where once they had walked with God, now the fire of God's anger burned. No way back. It's the great divorce between heaven and earth. Between God's realm and our realm. Between God and us. So the question comes, is there a way back? Well, I hope you know, I hope you know the answer. Because there in the garden, there's the promise of a saviour. And when he comes, he will be the last Adam. He will do all that Adam could not do to fulfill man's destiny. Read Hebrews 2. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the climactic moment will be the cross, where at infinite cost to himself, he will crush Satan's head and rescue his people from sin and death and hell. And Eden will be restored, only it will be so much better. In the eyes of what's him, you'll know it. Where he, as Jesus, where he displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more in him. The tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And so we come to chapter 22. Chapter 22 is not God's plan B. You know, it all went wrong and God had to think of of another plan. This was always the plan. Where through the sheer grace and mercy and love of God, we might arrive at the ultimate future. 
where heaven and earth are united, where Christ and his bride are married, where the dwelling place of God is now with man. A glorified church, a beautiful city. And here, chapter 22, a new Eden. So chapter 21 is all about the city, but then we kind of, when we come to chapter 22, we find it's actually a garden city. A garden and a city brought together, and it's the centerpiece of the renewed creation, this renewed universe. So let's look at these first five verses um, under five headings, a new Eden. And the first is this, uh, the river of the water of life. Look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Now, in the first Eden, there was a river, broke into four uh, other rivers, um, and they flowed out to water the earth. But that river was lost. The life it gave dried up. But here, flowing through the heart of the city and out into the world, is the river of the water of life. Bright, clear, unpolluted, inexhaustible, life-giving, accessible to all, liquid life. And what's the source of the river? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The source of the river is the throne of God and of the Lamb, the Father and the Son. Now, do you remember how the Holy Spirit is spoken of in Scripture? We read that He proceeds, He flows from the Father and the Son. And how is the Holy Spirit, how is He pictured in Scripture? Well, John 7, Ezekiel 47, other places, He's pictured as a river. Or rather, we should say, every river is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So think of a river. What is a river? It's water. But it's not standing water, is it? It's water, and it brings water to us. So think of the Spirit. He is God, but He brings God to us. Not a stagnant canal, but the river of the water of life. This is picture language. You see what it's saying? Here is the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And all the fullness of God, all the pleasures of God, are by the Spirit pouring unceasingly into the church, into the city, into this new world. And we begin to see what scriptures in the Old Testament, now quite what they were saying. Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Or Psalm 36, you give them drink from the river of your delights. So brothers and sisters, it's saying that we shall be filled to overflowing with the very life of God. All of God will be known and felt. 
Father and Son experienced, enjoyed by His people through the Spirit. Think of that. God, His love, joy, peace, wisdom, righteousness, majesty, glory, the glories of His love, for God is love, pouring unceasingly, a never-ending river of life pouring into the church. So Father, Son, and Spirit have wrapped us up in their embrace. We should be lost in God. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We need to know that it's the Lamb. Because this eternity of life and blessing has been won for us by the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The river of the water of life. Point number two, the tree of life. Look at verse two. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So that first Eden, how many trees of life were there? There was just one. But here we've got avenues, <laughs> avenues of the trees of the tree of life. And where was that single tree? Well, it was in the middle of the garden. You had to go and, to go and find it. But here the tree of life is accessible to all. On either side of the river, the tree of life. And don't think of it sort of like an apple orchard. Lots of small trees. Ezekiel 31 makes it clear that the tree of life was the greatest of the trees. So here are avenues of these huge, beautiful, life-giving trees drawing their fruitfulness from the river. It's drawing on the picture in Ezekiel 47. Again, go go home and read that later. See what it says. And who eats the fruit? All this lovely fruit of the tree of life. Who eats it? We do. Again, it's 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 picture language, isn't it? Do you get the picture? The tree of life. It's not just existence. The tree of life. And we eat its fruit. We are feeding on life. God's life. Now think about that. When do you feel alive? We'll all have different answers to that, won't we? Some people say, well, my favorite meal. Or maybe when I get into a cold river, uh, or love's first kiss, or a newborn baby, or you're meeting up with, with friends, or you've been away from home for so long and you go home and the welcome you get, or a bride and groom rejoicing in each other. Life, and in those situations you might say, I, f- I feel alive. Or maybe now we're, with, we're within touching distance of what it's like to experience the life of God. 
the life of God enjoyed. The life of God enjoyed by all his people. And you see, it speaks of 12 kinds of fruit. So what do you enjoy? Again, we'll have different answers to that question, won't we? Some people talk about music or butterflies or cricket, mountains, snow, embracing, wrestling. Because life comes in so many different varieties, doesn't it? The variety of life. Well, again, when you think about that, maybe we're now in touching distance of what it's like to experience the fullness and the variety of the very life of God. And in that may be something especially for you as an individual. There's something that you like and enjoy, that you say, ah, I feel alive, that God has especially for you. Twelve kinds of fruit. And who knows what new senses we will be given. And what new capacities of mind and soul and body we will have so that we can together taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's that number 12 again, isn't it? We thought about that before. The fullness to be enjoyed by the fullness, the completeness of God's people. It's saying there is satisfaction for all. None of God's people will say, oh, I, 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 I missed out. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The trees never run out. A never-ending abundance. Again, it's, it's the same picture as the river, isn't it? This ever-flowing abundance. Life, life, life. Here are the trees of life. Life, 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 life. A never-ending abundance for all God's people, for you. And then again, we begin to understand what some of those promises were. Jesus said, what did he say? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But we didn't realize the abundance of the life that he was to give us. The old hymn says, nor could untainted Eden give such joy as blossoms at his side. Then the end of verse 2, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Healing. Brothers and sisters, in this world, our path is a tear-stained, blood-stained path. But we'll leave behind this world, this world of sorrows and wounds and pain and grief and death. These things will be no more. And so to point number three. No more curse. Verse three. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. No more curse. We thought about this last time. It's saying nothing can enter the garden city that will ever ruin it, ever defile it. So there'll be no shame, no guilt, no condemnation, no lie, no sin, no curse, no weary flesh that keeps kicking against what I want to do, no seducing world, no satanic assaults, nothing between us as brothers and sisters, nothing between us and the Lord. 
And unlike the first Eden, no possibility of a fall. No longer will there be anything accursed. There's an old spiritual that has the words, sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home. A motherless child a long way from home. Because we're exiles. We all have that sense. We all feel that. We're exiles in a cursed world. It's all we've ever known. So when the psalmist says, Psalm 42, he says, As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then he goes on and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Why? Why does the psalmist feel like that? Why is he so cast down? And actually, when you look at what the psalmist is doing, he's doing all the right things. He's doing everything that a spiritual man should do, and yet he's cast down. Why? Because we are all exiles in a cursed world. We are like motherless children a long, long way from home. That's why from nowhere your soul will sometimes be cast down. We're in a world in which we no longer belong. And we're longing for home. But brothers and sisters, the day will come when we leave it all behind. And we'll be going home. In fact, we want to run home, won't we? Run home to our Father's house to be with the Lord, where a day in his courts is better than a what? Thou- it just says a thousand in the original. And, and, and people write, translate it, add little words on the end. But I just think a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Well, what? A thousand lifetimes. <laughs> to stand where I could never have stood. But because of Christ, I can now stand. I can stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Home. Stand there. Kneel there. Adore there. Worship Him. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Home at last. And so to number four. We shall see his face. Look at verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We shall see his face. What happened at the fall? Separation. God hid his face. Nothing speaks more powerfully of separation than not being able to see the face of the one that I love. The great theologian John Murray, he was one of four sons. Um, all of them fought in the Great War, the 1914-18 war. Um, and on the day John's brother, Tommy, left for the war, it was described as perhaps one of the most affectionate partings between a loving father and his dutiful son. And it says, the thick-set, soft-spoken father put his arms round Tommy's neck, the lad who had never said no to his father. And Tommy embraced his father. And his father said, Goodbye, Tommy. I'll never see you again. And so it was to prove. 
Tommy was killed in action. Separation. What that father would have given to see Tommy's face again. On my days off, I find myself walking in the countryside. I used to walk as a lad. I kept wondering why. Why do I want to keep walking those old grounds where I used to go fishing or walking with my family? Why? And I think it's because I'm grieving. My family weren't believers. And I grieve. I grieve for the ones I've lost. I grieve for the faces I shall never see again. Separation. But when I see his face, those wounds will be healed. In my mind, I can see my father's face. In that face, I can see the warmth and the love that he had for me. But in that face, in my mind's eye, I am also catching a glimpse of Christ's face. Because we're all made in the image of God. We're all God's image bearers. And so if the thought of seeing my father again face to face, the joy it would bring and yet it will never be, what will it be like when I see the Lord's face? It'll be so much more, won't it? So much more than ever seeing my father's face. The joy, the comfort. Because when I see his face, I will know the years of separation are over. And it will be the crowning moment. And my soul will flood with joy inexpressible. And I won't be able to think of anything save my Jesus. And every cell of my redeemed body will be alive to his voice, his touch. To see his face. And not just me, but all the redeemed. The city, the church, the bride. And there'll be one heartbeat, one desire, one voice, one song. We shall see his face. No more separation. And you can take another angle. In the 70s, there was a uh, series on television called The World at War. It was about the Second World War. And as the credits rolled, what did they show? They showed battles or ruins or weapons. They showed a series of faces, men, women, boys, girls, old people. Faces, because nothing conveys more powerfully the horrors of war than looking into the faces of those who endured it. Each face was telling a story that words couldn't express. The face says everything, doesn't it? They will see his face. Once that face spoke of the horrors of the cross. We read it was a face marred more than any man. It doesn't say more than any man's, but more than any man. A face that no longer looked human, 
because of the grief of the cross, because the Father did not spare his own Son. But if that face once conveyed the horrors of the curse that is past, when we see him, his face will convey the joys of the glory that's to come. And you see, looking into his face, we'll know it's all true. The reassurance, the wonder, it's all true as you witness the radiance of the splendor of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That loveliness divine. And it will be our wedding day. And we'll be joined to Christ. And there'll be more and more and more of Jesus. And we'll be united to God. Deeper and deeper and deeper communion. And that's why we have to have pictures. Because it's saying that it's happiness beyond words. No more separation. No more grieving. Joy inexpressible. What does it say? They shall see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What does a bride do? She takes the name of her husband. We'll take his name because I am his and he is mine. A perfect union, Christ and his church. Never were two lovers more made for each other. And before a watching universe, we'll take our place at his side. Sometimes in this world, we know it's the Lord. Never several years back when I was speaking at the Heath camp, speaking about the cross. And the Lord was there. At the end of that time, people didn't get up and go. They, were, they stayed. Some were weeping. We could say, the Lord was there. He's here. But then the bridegroom leaves. See, even in the first Eden, the far, God used to come to the garden, but then he used to leave the garden, didn't he? He came to the garden in the cool of the day, but then he would leave. The coming and going of the bridegroom. But on that day, no coming and going. Forever with the Lord. And so to our final point, number five, our destiny. Look at verse five. And night will be no more, they need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We talked about the sun last time. The sun is a signpost, isn't it? It, it has a second-hand glory. It's a mediated glory. So it shines, it's bright, it's glorious, but it's a second-hand glory, and it's pointing us to a greater glory pointing us to the God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all. And here the Lord God, you see now it's talking of the Father and the Son together, the Lord God, the Father and the Son, through the Spirit. God will be our light. No mediated glory, the unmediated glory of God. We will see it, the glory, the radiance, the shining. It means his name, 
His presence, His fullness, His face. And then again, those Old Testament prophecies come back. Habakkuk 2 verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, when you have the sun, it's a mediated glory. You can't say the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a second-hand glory. But when we see him, the glory of the glory of the glory, <laughs> well, the glory of the Lord will, will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. How, how deep is that? How rich is that? Again, it's picture language, isn't it? it because it, words just can't embrace it. So what will the reality be like? When the pictures give way to what will really be in all its fullness. The Lord filling every horizon, filling every heart, fullness upon fullness. And then we read this, verse 5, and they will reign forever and ever. Adam was created to reign. But on the day that he fell, what happened? The ground rebelled. The ground produced now thorns and thistles. The animals rebelled. They became wild and threatening. And Adam and his children were now under the rule of a fallen angel, Satan. And Adam and his children are now engaged in a life and death struggle with, for survival, which in the end they will lose because dust you are and to dust you shall return. Anything but reigning and ruling. Fear no more. Here in Jesus Christ, we're restored to our ancient destiny. So what will it be like in God's new world with sinless hearts and resurrection bodies and the fullness of the Spirit to sit with Jesus upon the throne and to reign over the works of God's hands? What horizons there will be to explore all the renewed creation, and more. What will it be like? They will reign forever and ever. And there it ends. If I can take a sort of C.S. Lewis take of it. So ends chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Or as Scripture says, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We haven't even begun to understand the wonders of God's redemption. And all this for sinners. All this for you and me, for great sinners. It's the sheer power of his grace, isn't it? The unimaginable magnitude of his love. How can it be? Do you remember Tommy, the son who never said no to his father? Remember their affectionate parting? Well, Jesus, the Son who never said no to his Father, 
who laid down his life for us, who was parted from his Father, the Father who at the cross turned his face away. It's all because of grace. It's all because of the matchless love of the Father who gave his Son. It's all because of the wonders of the Lamb of God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All because of them. All because of him. Christian friends, do you feel that the Christian life is costing you too much? Are the distractions of this age taking over? Is sin looking increasingly attractive? Are you harboring dark thoughts? Are there really only 15 hymns in the hymn book on the hope of glory? I wonder if every problem in the Christian life Every problem in the life of the church begins when we lose sight of glory, of our ultimate future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have skated over these things. We wanted to sink down wells with every word. We wanted to mine the ground. We wanted to see more and more, but we've only been able to be swallows just skimming the surface, taking little drinks. But we pray, Father God, that you would help us to meditate upon these things, to go through them in our hearts, to rehearse again and again these realities that the life of heaven might grip us, change us, transform us. That we might be the people who, who have the, the touch of glory and heaven already upon them. That, Lord, you'd stir us up to hunger and thirst after you. That, Lord, we would come looking more and more for Jesus. That we would be a people more and more filled with your Spirit, indeed overflowing, saturated with your Spirit. Oh, don't leave us to ourselves. We'll only shrink back. We're given to decay. We're given to declension. But come, revive us, change us, thrill us with what is to be that we might live in this world, in the light of the world to come, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.